Hello and welcome to the official Sasta podcast with your host Harry Stebbings and you can find me on Snapchat at hstebbings with two b's and the main man Jason Lemkin on Twitter at JasonLK. However, it will not be long until you do not need to find us on social at all, but in person at the world's greatest SAS event, Sasta Annual 2018, now less than two months away I believe. And if you haven't grabbed your tickets yet, we would love to see you there and if you enter the promo code DRINKSWITHHARRY, those three words, DRINKSWITHHARRY, when you purchase your tickets, you get a whopping 10% off the ticket price and an exclusive invite to our mojito event with me what more could you want for christmas again that's drinks with harry when you purchase your tickets but to the show today and i was wondering what's the best way to commemorate the last sasta episode of this year then i realized what if i were to choose my favorite episode that was originally a two-parter and put them together and do a double whammy now to celebrate christmas and the festive season so with that in mind i'm thrilled to re-welcome today david scock a serial entrepreneur turned vc at matrix partners prior to being in vc david founded four companies and check out this track record three of the companies he founded went public and one was acquired and then in 2001 david joined matrix partners as a general partner with matrix having backed his last two startups david's successful exit as an investor at matrix on many and include the likes of hubspot jboss app iq tableau Neteza, and many more and david currently serves on the board of the likes of atomist cloudbees and namely just to name a few and i'd also have to add a personal recommendation being david's blog and you can find the links in the show notes. However, before we dive into the show today, today's episode is sponsored by Datadog, a cloud-scale monitoring and analytics platform. Datadog brings you visibility into every part of your infrastructure, plus APM, for monitoring your application's performance. Dashboarding, collaboration tools, and alerts let you develop your workflow for observability and incident response. And Datadog integrates seamlessly with all your apps and systems, from Amazon Web Services to Docker to VMware, so you can get full stack visibility in minutes. Simply go to datadog.com forward slash sasta to learn more and check this out if you start a free trial we'll send you a free t-shirt and thanks to my friends at WePay, now a chase company let me introduce you to another very cool player in sas Fusebill, the subscription billing management platform designed for rapid growth businesses so why do hundreds of companies use it to bill more than 10 million customers a year because Fusebill's flexible ledger-based product simplifies all aspects of recurring billing and invoicing meaning users can efficiently maximize their revenue at all stages of growth and you can learn more at Fusebill Fusebill.com. And to learn how you can grow your revenue with integrated payments like Fusebill did, visit wepay.com forward slash Sasta. WePay's got this incredible cheat sheet on how to get started with platform payments. Again, that's wepay.com forward slash Sasta. However, that's quite enough from me. And so I'm now thrilled to replay this very special conversation with David Scott, general partner at Matrix Partners. Good. That's perfect. Okay. I think we're warmed up. David, so brilliant to have you on the show today. Huge thanks to Jason Lemkin and Hardy for the intro, but thank you so much for joining me today, David. Yeah, real pleasure. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's fun for me to see somebody who's young doing really, really well and um, doing something original and creative here. So it's a pleasure to be able to help you. Well, that's very, very kind of you. But I'd love to start today with a, a two to three minute bio of you and how you made your way first into the wonderful world of, of SaaS investing that we love so much. Yeah, yeah. So super fast bio for me is um, I studied computer science um, back in the UK, came out of it and within about six months or so of leaving college, ran into a problem in the machine tool area, which um, I could see how to solve using software. So I wrote a piece of software and very accidentally, without any planning, um, started a company, got myself to to become an entrepreneur without any kind of recognition that that was what was happening. Did well with that company up to a point when the, the PC came out, it uh, totally disrupted the, the business model. Model pricing and channel, etc., that I was using. So I actually 
actually ended up having a failure at the, at the end of that company, which was a shame as, as it had been doing very well before. And so I kind of retreated back to the UK with my tail between my legs, felt very ashamed of myself because in those days, failure wasn't treated as a badge of honor. It was um, uh, not a good thing at all. Ended up um, starting a, another company. That one did remarkably well, ended up combining with a US company and going public. And I then did a turnaround and two more companies. Uh, and in total, three, three of the, those companies ended up going public. So that fast forward to the year 2001, we're now looking at the post-bubble era. I'm sitting there thinking, you know, what do I want to do next? Realizing that I really enjoy helping other entrepreneurs and the smart way to do that is to, to invest and to help them. And whilst I'm thinking that Matrix Partners who had backed my last two startups came and invited me to join the firm. And I have to just say, you know, really quickly, I had worked with 15 different VCs and when I did my last company, I didn't really need any VC capital at all, but I'd gone back to Matrix because they'd been such a fabulous partner for me and really represented, um, you know, great evidence of the fact that you can get fantastic help from your board members. Um, so I, I brought them into my fifth company. So I really loved the firm and had a great relationship with them. So when they asked me to join, it was kind of an honor and um, something that I jumped into. <laughs> and when I got into the business, I was very much, you know, all of my companies had been all about software and selling B2B. So I focused on software and B2B. And of course, there were two really big things that happened in the software space. One of them was open source. I got into that early. I was the investor in JBoss, which was really the first um, open source company along with MySQL after Red Hat to re-enter that space. And investors were hyper-skeptical about open source at that stage because there was no, they didn't see a way that you could make money out of giving something away free. Um, that, then the second thing was obviously when software shifted to becoming software as a service. And I got into that very early uh, and was really lucky to be involved with both Zendesk and HubSpot, which were uh, fantastic entrants into, I think I would think of it as being the second stage of SaaS, Salesforce and some ent very high-end enterprise companies were the first era. Uh, they employed pretty much the old enterprise selling model. And I think of um, both HubSpot and Zendesk as being the new generation that were employing the sales 2.0 methodology inside sales organizations, high volume transactional selling techniques. Again, I have to give so much credit here because a lot of people credit me as having some useful insights um, for them on my blog. But in all honesty here, I want to give the credit for that back to the guys at HubSpot and also particularly to somebody called Gail Goodman, who was the CEO of Constant Contact, who was on the HubSpot board, because I learned so much of that stuff working with those guys. And I, what I did was really maybe write about it in a, in a useful way for other people, but the actual learnings and what have you were, were very much attributable to, to them as a source there. Absolutely. And, and you said about your writing there. I do have to say how much I do love your writing. We'll, we'll link to it in the show notes. But talking about the second phase then of SaaS, as you mentioned there, one inherent element is kind of the rise of data and, and the rise of metrics that it's allowed us. So on this topic then, uh, you know, we know that kind of uh, very small data points can make massive changes to SaaS businesses. So what would you say is, is one of the single most important metric points then for you? So if, if you don't mind, I'm going to answer that question by lifting it up a little bit um, first and then coming down to that one. Because I, I, I think the picture I want to play out here is why are metrics so important? What role do they play in an organization? You highlighted the most interesting thing here, which is we are moving to a very data-driven decision-making world. Uh, and I think the reason for this is was beautifully summed up by Lord Kelvin, who made the statement, if you can't measure something, you can't improve it. And one of the ways that I have of really highlighting this to entrepreneurs is the following situation. I've been in a number of board meetings where the company involved has missed the sales number. They, they, you know, they, they projected they would hit X in the way of bookings and they, they missed it by a significant amount. The really bad companies, you kind of get that statement for them, well, we missed the, the number. And then you ask them the question, well, why did you miss the number? And 
the quality of the company will be determined by the quality of the answer that you get. So the bad company will kind of shake their heads and say, well, we're not really sure, but we, you know, we, we, we think it might have been some seasonality or it could have been something to do with a political issue that was going on or the economy or something like that. The really good companies will, will jump in and they will be able to break that down and tell you, well, wait a second. When we looked at what was going on, we can tell you that our eastern region performed just as well as they have done in the past, but our western region didn't. And so they missed plan. So then you dive in a second, you say, okay, so what happened there? Well, um, you know, we had three salespeople that we just hired as new and their productivity didn't ramp according to what we expected it would do. And so let's go and look at, you know, what, what was the cause behind that? And then they will also be able to look at things like, did their close rate from opportunities that they had to close deals or their win rate against a competitor, which are all metrics that, and data that you use to analyze, whether, you know, whether things, they'd be able to tell you whether those stayed the same. So if you knew your opportunity to close rate had stayed the same, then you know that there's nothing you know, substantially different. If it, if it had gotten worse, then you ask the question, well, why did it get worse? Was there a new competitor that was had a feature that we didn't have or were we not selling as well against them? So you're able to actually figure out how to go and fix that problem and understand why it happened. And that's, to me, is that's sort of the essence of why metrics are such a fundamental part of how you run a business. And I think this is a really, you know, we entered a new era around about the 2008 timeframe when finally we, we started to get the data that people in sales and marketing wanted to be able to make data-driven decisions. And that was the new era uh, that got ushered in as a result of that. You know, an interesting other thing about metrics here is if you're a CEO and you want to align your company around achieving something, one of the best ways you can do that is to pick a small number of metrics and make them highly visible inside the company and then constantly revisit how you're going to do against those metrics. And what, what happens automatically, the moment you put a bunch of uh, those metrics in front of your team, without you having to do anything else, they will automatically know that you're going to be looking at those and they will start to improve them. So it's just a terrific technique for aligning a company around what you want to get done uh, and getting improvement in that area there. And then, you know, the last comment I'd make here is that the metrics are, are, are a hierarchy. So what do I mean by that? Well, I thought about this and realize that if you actually took the highest of high level things that people care about in a business, particularly if you're investing in that business, there's only four metrics that you really care about. They are profit, cash, growth, and market share. So if you only have those four, why do you need to bother with the other ones? Well, the answer is that if you if your growth rate was lower than you expected it to be, you need to dive deeper, drill down to figure out why. So just as I kind of outlined how you drill down into missing the forecast, on a sales number, we would now need to create a hierarchy of the metrics that go together to create, you know, what, what happened to our profitability? Well, that's, you know, it's both top line, gross margin expenses. Um, uh, if we look at our growth rate, well, that's really funnel metrics. You know, were we successful at adding the number of new leads into the top of our funnel and converting that funnel at the same rate at which we'd hope to? Uh, and then you, when you start looking at that, you start asking questions, well, did our sales force perform? Did we have enough salespeople? Did they, did they all achieve quota as, as appropriate. Uh, so it's to, uh, hopefully that concept of a hierarchy comes out there. So Because I think people can get confused with metrics uh, by diving too low too quickly and not realizing, well, why are we tracking this? You know, what, what is, what's the purpose of this? And I think the purpose of that is to recognize it's these four top-level metrics. And what we're trying to do is build a way of understanding the components that drive our business and use those as great techniques for managing the business, for understanding when things are going uh, going to go wrong, uh, anticipating it before they go wrong and being able to fix it before they go wrong, etc. So that, I, I, I'm sorry that I missed, I, I didn't answer your question directly, but I didn't want to dive straight to like a pinpoint
point metric without really giving that framework there, because that I think allows you to understand that when you when you do jump to a pinpoint metric, it is you know as, as a result of being able to support one of those four very high level metrics that you're trying to achieve in the business. No, absolutely, it was a very unfair question to pinpoint one, but kind of talking about the core components that make a successful business. Uh, I've seen kind of obviously in my short business career that the entire world of business is uh, developed and centered around a, a method of assessing the health based upon say gap financials. However, from my knowledge of Saster and from doing the SaaS show and speaking to so many investors, is that's not applicable to SaaS businesses. So why specifically to SaaS do you think that is? And what metrics in SaaS then really determine the trajectory of the business? Yeah, yeah, it's a great observation and a terrific insight there. So gap metrics are profit revenue and cash. So they, they are three of the metrics that I talked about earlier on. But the reason why SaaS presents a problem is that a really successful SaaS business will have terrible profitability and terrible cash flow in the early days. And, and I call that the SaaS cash flow trough. And the reason for this is pretty much simple, which is you're going to spend a lot of money to acquire a customer right at the very early part of the life cycle of your, your relationship with them. But unlike the old software business, where you, you recovered it immediately in a big license check from them. In SaaS, you recover it over many years in small payments. So it actually takes a long time before you even recover the cash that you invested to acquire the customer and do the onboarding of that customer. So a very successful a SaaS business is going to burn a lot of cash and, and show terrible profitability in the early days. And I remember having, you know, presenting several of these companies to my partners here who are very savvy, you know, investors and watching them looking on horror as they saw these, you know, $10 million, $15 million in some quarters losses that we were seeing in some of these companies. And, you know, normally in a traditional business, we wouldn't, we wouldn't not normally like our businesses to lose more than $2 million in a quarter. So their, their eyebrows were really raised and they were seriously questioning whether I knew what I was doing. <laughs> and so we needed a different way to understand because some of these businesses that are losing that much money aren't good businesses, but some are good businesses. So what's the difference? How do you know if your SaaS business is a good one where you're, you know, you're, you're throwing that $15 million into a good cause where you'll get it back later on in time? How do you know if it's a bad business where you really shouldn't be losing that much money because you're not going to ever get it back? And I think the, the answer to this really is to look at um, fundamentally the unit economics. And I think there are, there are two units that I would suggest people look at. The first one is the customer level unit economics. And, and that's looking at how much does it cost me to acquire this customer and how much money will I make from them over the lifetime of my relationship with them. So that's CAC and LTV, which I think everybody now knows quite well. And I recommend people look at the ratio between those. So the LTV, the lifetime value of the, the, how much money you make from that customer, I always recommend it should be at least three times what it costs you to acquire them. But an even more powerful metric that I've discovered you know, over time, probably the most important of all is how, how long does it take you to recover uh, the amount of money that you spent to acquire that customer? And in my blog, I initially suggested a number that you shouldn't take longer than 12 months. I have to say that that's, that's I've always sort of said, look, this is, this is a guideline here rather than a rule. And if you take longer than 12 months, it's not going to kill your business. It's just mean, going to mean that you'll consume a lot more cash in the process of growing the business. In reality, most 
companies are actually probably more like 18 months, and the really good ones are done at 12, but not many ever get this. It's, it's, I probably put too aggressive of a number in there, but 18 months. Uh, quite a few of my enterprise companies start out worse than that, you know, than the 20, 22 months. But if you're starting to go beyond 24 months or even be at 24 months, that is a red flag to you that you don't have a great business and you really shouldn't be continuing to invest heavily until you fix those core metrics there. Uh, and you should take your foot off the, the accelerator pedal and crack hard to get those metrics right before you go back into high growth mode and, and uh, increasing the, the trough that you have there. Does that extended payback period not also make retention ever more important? Kind of quickly? It does. It's a, you know, a great connection that you just made there because um, ultimately the components of lifetime value of the customer are how much your average deal size is, what your churn rate looks like or your dollar retention rate looks like, um, and your gross margin. So uh, you're very right to look at retention as being just this extraordinarily critical aspect of a SaaS business. And I think it's one of the biggest differences between a SaaS business and any kind of old business that we had. So in the old days, you would find Oracle going out there and doing these massive all-you-can-eat licensing deals where they would go into a poor customer and sell them $15 million worth of Oracle software. And the salesperson would walk out and the customer service people would kind of be left with this thing. And they really wouldn't care that much about it because, frankly, they got the check from the customer and it didn't matter to them whether the customer was actually happy or using that software. And a lot of that stuff sat on shelves and never got used. In a SaaS business, the great thing is that the customer needs are very aligned with what the SaaS company has to do, which is keep that customer happy and get them to continue using the product and get value out of the product over a long period of time. Otherwise, you're never going to recover your investment in in acquiring that customer. If they leave after, say, three months or 12 months, you're just going to lose money on, on, on every customer acquisition that you make there. So retention is super, super important. And it's, it's like a, a totally big wake-up call for so many SaaS CEOs if they've ever been in a you know in a business that wasn't like this that geez we really have to we actually have to take customer happiness really seriously and in the past we kind of yeah we kind of had a customer support department but they really weren't important nobody invited them to our management meetings and we never looked at any stats from them at all now customer success is front and center and a super crucial department that you're paying a ton of uh, attention to before we dive into customer success i'd love to talk about kind of salesperson productivity with regards to kind of the unit economics aspect and and how productive they have to be, maybe in terms of ARR provided in relation to their compensation package? Yep, yep. So again, I'm going to step a little bit uh, above this to answer the question. The, 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 the reason for that is that I think I love the fact that SaaS businesses are really very mathematically driven. Um, and actually, pretty much any business is in sales. And the math is simple, which is if you want to hit a certain number in a quarter, uh, you need to close a certain number of deals at a certain size. So you look at your average deal size. Let's say you want to do a million and your average deal size is 100,000. You need to do 10 deals a quarter. So then you look at that and you say, okay, well, we, we know that our average salesperson is only actually able to close maybe one of those a quarter. So that means we need 10 salespeople to bring in that 100,000 of deals there. So you've got this fantastic math that um, allows you to back from any number that you've got in a forecast back to how many salespeople, how many deals have to close, what deal size do they have to be. And if you get that math right, you can run your business very predictably. I see a lot of people still not recognizing how that math, you know, how you can back test your forecast using that math. So 
that's a recommendation for people. If you're not doing that, that's a good thing to be doing. So what that leads you to is kind of this recognition, well, we need to have a certain number of salespeople in the organization to be able to achieve. We've got to have that capacity of people to do those 10 deals because if we only had eight salespeople and they could only do 130, we're not going to have a good chance of doing the, the million that we were looking for there. The next question would be, are they actually worth that much? Because we're going to be paying these salespeople potentially a lot of money. Is the math, the unit economics on that salesperson good? And that's to your question here. So let me answer your question. In my experience, and this is again, one of these guidelines, not hard and fast rules, the good companies have a, a sales rep able to bring in five times more money than in basically top line growth at roughly say a 70% gross margin for an average SaaS company than you, you pay them in the way of on target earnings. So let's take this and, and break it down. If your salesperson is being paid 50,000 base and 50,000 in commission, their on target earnings are 100,000. You would want to see them producing 500,000 every year in the way of new ARR that they're adding, annualized annual contract value uh, that they're bringing into the company. If they're bringing in less than that, is that a disaster? No, but it should tell you that you're not best in best of breed and you've got some inefficiencies and you should be aiming higher. And if they're bringing in above that, and I should point out, by the way, I've worked with companies that have got that number as high as 8 to 11. Those are really, you know, standout ultra high performers and they generally have some kind of network effect or something else like that that's helping them get those higher numbers but that's just a rough guide and in fact I, you know, I like to see companies that, that I'm working with in the 5 to 6 range and hopefully that's the direct answer to your question I'm sorry about the roundabout where I took to get to, to but, answer it for you that absolutely is it absolutely is in terms of kind of that very stat and, and metric driven approach in terms of the small number of things that teams need to focus on I've heard you say that bookings is absolutely crucial so so let's start then I'm, I'm going to take it from the, uh, a more meta view uh, this time uh, instead of you having to do that and say what's the booking then and why why do we have to get away from the term booking do you think yep yep great so the uh, a booking is the new business that you brought in in any time period so let's take a uh, you know a month as being the unit of time so let's say we look at three different customers that came in in a month so let's say one came in and we did a three year contract with them and every year they're paying us 100,000 so our booking you could look at the booking and get confused by it because is the booking 300,000 because that's totally actually what you got a commitment for or could you consider the booking to be 100,000 of annualized value to you. It's those two ways of looking at the booking. So, so that's a bit of a controversy around bookings, which is another reason why we need to have clarity on this thing. Now, let's say the second customer that you brought in actually only signed up for three months. But if you took the rate at which they you know, were paying you every month and looked at it over a year, it was also still $100,000. The question would be between those two customers, which one was the bigger booking? Well, normal logic would tell you that the first one was a much bigger booking because it was a three $300,000 booking instead of a 30, uh, uh, actually a $25,000 booking, because if you only got three months of, of $100,000, it would be $25,000. So the one would look much better than the other. But in truth, if you know the churn rate is going to be identical for both of those customers, and the three-month booking isn't going to churn at the end of three months, and is actually going to likely be with you for five or six years anyway, there's really no difference between those two customers. But they would feel like they're drastically different. So this length of time of the contract is the reason why the term bookings is a bad term to be using. And what I recommend SaaS companies do is they define bookings in terms of a standardized unit of 
time. And the best one is normally annual contract value. Um, so you reduce everybody's contract to what's this worth over a year time period to us. And then you add a second component to that, which is, you know, how much money are they paying us in advance? So over all of our contracts, um, a common number that I see amongst my companies is that they're able to collect, say, seven months of cash upfront with the mixture of some people paying full year in advance and some people only wanting to pay monthly and some pay maybe three months in advance. So if you look at those two, two numbers, that gives you a better way of tracking. There's a really interesting next step of drill down to actually understand what's going on in a SaaS business because what I'm going to want to know at the end of every month there is how much new annual contract value or annual recurring revenue did we add in this month? And the answer to that is made up of three components. So the first component is, well, we signed some new customers, and so we added some new revenue by adding customers. But if we lost customers in the quarter, we have to take the number down by the amount of revenue that we lost from churning customers. And if we're successful in uh, expanding some of our existing customers, then we've got a expansion component out of our installed base that could actually be a positive contributor. So those are the three contributors. Two of them are positive, new customers and expansion revenue, and one is negative, and that's churn. And so my advice to every SaaS entrepreneur is that cornerstone graph that they use to run their business with is a bookings graph that's got those three components plus the fourth one, which is the total sum total of all of those, the net new ARR that they added in the, the month or quarter, and that they track those three numbers against a plan dotted line number on a graph over time. And those will allow them to really understand the main things that are going to make up whether they're actually making their bookings number. And I have one last piece to add on this here, which is, um, you know, what I see when I meet with a lot of SaaS companies is they like to show me their ARR graph. So they, they, this is a graph that has got the ending ARR at the end of every quarter or every month. And it's a graph that always goes up and to the right because that's the nature of SaaS. You know, <laughs> you're at, you're, you're growing at all. The first thing I do with that graph is I look at the growth rate by looking at the slope of the line. If it's a direct straight line that I could fit through that graph, it tells me that their bookings are not increasing. They're adding the same amount of new ARR ARR quarter after quarter, and that's a bad sign. So what I'm looking for is a different graph to that, which doesn't saves me from having to do that differential analysis of their ARR graph. I'm looking for them to show me what have their bookings looked like this quarter, last quarter, the pre previous quarter, and are they stuck? So you know, did, if, if they booked 100k in new ARR in Q1 and 100k in Q2 and 100k in Q3, their ARR graph is is going to look pretty good, but bookings graph is not going to look good. It's a flat line. It tells me that they haven't figured out how to repeatedly grow the way they're acquiring customers and they're stuck. So they, that's often caused by the fact that they haven't been adding enough sales capacity or they don't know how to increase the lead flow in the top of the funnel or some other aspect of their funnel is broken and they don't know how to scale it. And so, you know, I like to think of a, of a SaaS business, actually any startup in three phases that, you know, phase one is you're trying to find product market fit, you know, very obviously, and, and you shouldn't be trying to grow your, your sales funnel too aggressively until you know you've got good product market fit. Once you start to think you've got good product market fit, then you start working on phase two, which is how do I build a repeatable, scalable, and profitable sales machine? And the words repeatable and scalable are really super important in that. Do I know how to increase the number of leads that I need to feed a machine that's going to grow in a twice, add 
double bookings next year, double them again the year after? Do I know um, how to add salespeople and have them come up to speed within a guaranteed ramp time and all of them hit a certain productivity level? Have I got the appropriate sales onboarding and sales coaching processes in place to be able to do that? And if they're Bookings are growing nicely. That tells me that they have figured that out. And if they're not growing well, it tells me that they haven't figured that out. Um, so that's why that's important. Just quickly to shift to the third phase of a startup. The third phase is the interesting one, which is once you know your process is scalable and repeatable and profitable, you should hit the accelerator pedal, invest as much cash as you can lay your hands on because you've now got a, you know, effectively a cash generating machine. It's going to chew cash in the short term, but in the long run, it'll spit cash back out at a fantastic rate. Provided your unit economics are good the way we've outlined with the, you know, the LTV to CAC ratio and time to recover CAC. Um, and so I think just talking about those three phases there, the thing that I see companies make mistakes with those three phases, first mistake I see is that when they're still searching for a predictable way to acquire customers, a common VC and board member mistake is to come in and think they can cure the problem of not having that that process figured out by throwing more salespeople at it. And that's the very worst thing you can do because you will now increase your burn rate of the company and you will make it harder to figure out a repeatable process because now instead of running you know, a very controlled set of experiments with a small number of people that you can have good dialogue with and hiring the right kind of people to help you figure out that repeatable sales process, um, now having to deal with multiple salespeople coming to you and saying, hey, I'm, I'm not hitting quota, this playbook's not working, we, the product's not right and you've just got uh, you know, your burn rate greatly increased by all of those extra heads there. So once once you have the process figured out, a, f- a switch needs to flip in the business. And all of a sudden, you go from this highly constrained, keep our burn rate low, don't hire too many people, to an aggressive ramp where you actually need to add a lot of salespeople. And I remember, you know, one of the most fun board meetings at HubSpot, which was, you know, such a shock for them was when we, the board, turned around to them and said, you need to start hiring two salespeople a month because your, your machine works, your sales process works. Your, the whole funnel works here. And they were shocked by that because they'd been in such a mindset of you know not hiring anybody, keeping the burn rate low, that suddenly being told to go and hire that aggressively. And, and you know they knew that if you hire two salespeople, you're also going to have to hire customer success people, all these other people in the chain in marketing to create the leads for those two salespeople. So that was a very strange flip that happens. And that's the second mistake you see is that a lot of people don't realize that they have to make that flip once the process is repeatable and suddenly start investing aggressively at that stage. And so you see a lot of companies that kind of continue with the burn rate too low and not being aggressive enough in sales hiring when, they, when they've hit that point there because they don't recognize the, these three stages and how they, they alter how you run the business. So I always find it rather strange how that negative churn is always rather left aside in the world of SaaS and it's something I've heard you speak about before but for those who don't know, what is negative churn uh, for you first? Let's start with the mess of you again, that worked well. Yep, yep, excellent. So best way to explain this is to say that we sold two customers. Let's say the first customer bought $20,000 worth of um, you know, annual product from us. And the second customer only bought $2,000 worth of, of annual product from us. And then and a year later, let's look at two scenarios for, for churn. In scenario one, we lose the $20,000 customer. Even though our customer churn will only be 50% because we only lost one out of the two customers, our 
revenue churn is dramatically different because we lost 20,000 out of 22,000, which is nearly 95% of the of the revenue walked out the door with, with losing that customer. So that tells you a couple of things. You want to be tracking both customer churn and revenue churn separately because they're actually different. But now, let's take a different scenario here. Let's say that instead of losing the big customer, we lost the small customer. So we lost $2,000 of revenue. Um, so arguably, our churn in that situation is 5%. I think it's right. I probably have the, don't have the math totally right, but somewhere in that in that range there, uh, revenue churn is only 5%. But now let's take a scenario where actually one remaining customer, instead of doing 20,000 with us, we actually were successful in expanding their usage of the product. So they're now actually doing $30,000 with us instead of $20,000. Well, the new 10,000 that they've signed up for is far greater than the 2,000 of churn that we lost. So I call that negative churn. We're negative by $8,000 in terms of lost revenue. In other words, we, we added $8,000. So maybe a second way of looking at that is to look at how many dollars did we retain? Well, we retained $30,000 out of $22,000, even though we lost some customers. So our dollar retention rate, DRR, as it's sometimes referred to, is greater than 100%. I, I, don't, I can't do the math right off the top of my head, but it's probably something like 135% or something like that uh, of dollar retention rate. And what I found by doing models um, of different businesses and working with different companies that have achieved this negative churn is that it is transformative to a SaaS business. So the top piece of advice I would give to SaaS entrepreneurs once they've gotten product market fit and are well on their way to understanding the sales and marketing process is that they should turn their attention to, to figuring out how to get negative churn, You know how to find a way to upsell and cross-sell into their installed base. So even though they lose some customers, that ultimately they're still going to end up with more revenue from the cohort that began uh, when they, you know, they signed up that group of customers uh, a year later than they started with at the beginning. What does that do to the pricing axes? Excellent question. Yeah, well spotted, Harry, because that, that is, uh, you know, the first question I get from uh, many startups is, well, wait a second, we've only got one product and it, and it, it, it all costs $2,000. So how are we going to get more money out of those customers? If And this was actually the exact story at HubSpot. You know, it took us a while to educate ourselves about this. We had a, a single product that sold at $500 a month and there was nothing to upsell there. Um, so we couldn't go back to the install base and get more money out of them. So the first thing you realize with this is, well, how do we sell? sell something more to them? The answer is there's two things you could do. You, you can take your current product and have variable pricing axes so that even though they're using the same product, you're not selling them something different, you're going to get more money from them as they use it more. And so a good SaaS product will have at least one variable pricing axis and possibly more. So a common one you'll hear is how many seats of people are using this. But in many cases, that's not a good metric because you don't actually add more users. Uh, but you can be still be delivering more value. So in HubSpot's case, they chose to pick the number of leads that are in the database as a good method of determining how much value the customer is getting out of the system. So as you add more leads, you pay more money to them. You know, you'll find many different things. Dropbox, for example, uses the amount of storage that you're using as a metric for uh, increasing how much you pay them. And I'm sure all of you are familiar with different pricing schemes out there. But the, the important factor there is to look at your pricing scheme and ask if you've got very variable pricing axes. Don't worry about doing this if you're a very, very early stage company, 
because actually in truth in the really early stage you just want to keep things simple and sign up customers this is kind of a, a slightly it's like secondary thing you start to work on as you get a more mature and successful SaaS company the second thing you could obviously do is you could add more products so uh, you can have a pro version and you could have a enterprise version and you could charge more money for those you have different feature breakouts but those are different versions of the primary product uh, and then you could have some some add-on products which are really you know cross sells to a different thing you're selling them a reporting module I think ultimately when when you look at mature SaaS businesses even though the customers may not love this mature SaaS businesses probably have to break their products down into lots of different modules and price that way and the reason for this is pretty simple you're going to find that some customers are very comfortable and happy to pay you two million a year for your product and yet some other customers will only be willing to pay you ten thousand dollars a year so how on earth do you come up with pricing that lets you sell to both of those without accidentally finding that you instead of getting the two million dollars from the high-end customer you're only getting twenty thousand from them because you didn't come up with a good pricing scheme which allows you to capture their willingness to pay you that high pricing differential there and i think the way to do that is to end up with um, you know segmenting of the product into different elements that you know so you, you recognize that the $20,000 a year customer really doesn't need certain features, so you take them out. But you know that the $2 million a year customer, it's really important to them to have you know, global security features or things like that. And you put those into the, the version that they, they want to purchase. So hopefully that, that covers that topic that, for you. That does. Well, it, it kind of doesn't. It kind of doesn't. Uh, I feel like I talked to you for days and days. But uh, in terms of the upsell itself, to what extent do you accept customization as a way of closing deals and accepting upsell? Customization to me is a really dangerous thing. If you can productize it, and at which point I don't think of it as customization because it's just standard products that you're using to deliver what the customer wants. That's good. Why do I dislike customization? Well, it, it's not scalable typically. It means that you're using professional services or some human element to somehow or other configure or change, customize the product to suit each customer. And, and ultimately, that ends up not being a very scalable model. So, so if you can accomplish customization with, with configuration changes to, in a very easy way, maybe even have the customer self-configure uh, to do that customization, that's terrific. I'm, I'm all in favor of that because that's highly scalable. Uh, another model that I've seen companies go with is um, using a channel to do that customization for them. And again, you know, that, that's an okay thing to do. The problem with it is that now you've got this, this very, it, it takes a long time to get a channel to form and to become productive. And so you're going to slow down your growth growth rate dramatically if you're going to rely on that channel as the way to, to grow your business. Over time, it can be a great accelerator for a business, but in the early days, relying on a channel is super hard to get, get productivity out of. And then final question before we do the quick fire round, uh, and it's yep. in terms of the upsell itself, to what extent do you think it's the responsibility of customer success to, to negotiate and to be responsible for optimizing the upsell? Yeah, excellent question. My view on this here is that the account manager, who, who is the person inside of the customer success team, needs to maintain a relationship with a customer that's ultra highly trusted. And I think that you will damage that relationship if they are ever involved in asking that customer for money. I think you want that, that person to be responsible for making a very, very happy customer. So they're directly linked to how likely that the salesperson will be to get a renewal or an upsell because that account manager has done a good job of keeping them happy. But I personally don't 
don't love getting them involved in actually asking for the renewal or asking for the upsell. I think they can do a great job of getting the customer to want the upsell and then turning them over to an order taker to take that order. But I think you should you should have separation of church and state there, church church being making the customer happy and, and state being taking money from them and taking orders from them. And in terms of the point of contact within a company that you're dealing with, how important is it to track a champion within a company? Does it matter if they churn and leave? Uh, should you kind of be focused on this as the provider of the software? Yeah, excellent question. Great insight that you got with even asking that question. So, you know, what I've seen about customer retention is that there are two important predictors of whether you're going to have churn or not. Not They're not the only ones, but they're two very important ones. The first one is after the company has bought the product, they're in a great mood and they're willing to spend a lot of time learning the product and getting it going. And if you successfully onboard them, you've got a great, happy customer. If you don't successfully onboard them and you wait until you're trying to get your renewal to try to fix the happiness, it's much harder because they're not willing to spend the time. You know, they, they, already, they already had a bad experience with you and they've moved on and they're spending their time somewhere else. So it's really hard to get them to go back and do things now that you failed in that early stage. There. So what that tells me is that you should implement a scoring system at the end of your onboarding um, period to get the customer involved and tell you how well you did your onboarding. And if you didn't do a good job of onboarding, fix it then because that's the time when you've got their attention and that's the time when you need to, to make them happy. So that's that's the first factor. And you raised the second factor, which is I've seen in our portfolio companies that maybe even more important than that, that onboarding thing is that if your champion leaves the company and your product is not 100% sticky, then that is a huge predictor of churn. So one of the things the account manager wants to do is track whether your champion is still at that company. And if they leave, you know you've got to do another selling job, even though you've got a contract that might last for another six months or so. Because if you don't get another champion before your renewal comes along, they're very likely to churn. That's less true the more sticky your product is. We could talk about product stickiness, but that's sort of a super big topic. I think we should dive into a quick fire though. 60 seconds okay. faster. Far away. How does that sound? Sounds good to me. So let's do greenfield opportunities in SaaS for you. What are you excited by? Um, so right now, I'm excited about the fact that AI, artificial intelligence, machine learning, is a new enabling technology. And I think it may allow us to disrupt some older areas of business that have never had this applied to them. And so I'm interested in observing how AI gets brought into application areas such as, you know, selling, such as marketing, such as customer support, such as HR. And I, I'm not 100% sure yet whether this is going to result in brand new companies or whether the incumbents are going to be able to adopt this quickly enough to, to avoid there being new companies formed. But I do think we will see some new companies. So that's an area that I'm excited about. What do you know now that you wish you'd known when you started and you can choose when you started as in when you started as a VC or when you started as an accidental founder in the beginning. Yeah, so I'm going to pick the former, sorry, the, 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 the latter, when I started as an entrepreneur. The top thing I didn't appreciate when I started as an entrepreneur was how crucial building a great management team was. You know, I was a little sloppy in how I did it. For one, ex one example here is I never did really extensive reference checking, and I didn't build the kind of recruiting machine that I needed to make sure I saw the very best candidates and allow me to see multiple of them when I was recruiting. And I just didn't even know what a good manager looked like, because I was a first-time entrepreneur. I didn't have that opportunity and that, that experience of understanding what, what a team looked like, when I needed to build a team, when I should add the various members, what their skills should look like, how to interview them, how to reference check them, etc. Et 
So that's the top thing I wish I'd known. And I will say, of all the things that I got from my early venture capitalists, this was one of the things which they understood because they were doing it so many times and had so much experience in, in recruiting and, and hiring and being able to attract really good people to the table that they were able to really help me learn this. So if you're a first-time entrepreneur and this is not something that's you know second nature to you, this is a place where your VCs and, and board members can potentially be very helpful to you, particularly if they've got that operating background and have done this themselves. What are most SaaS companies making a mistake with, with regards specifically to their sales funnel? I think the top mistake, you, know, you remember my three-phase model there, uh, search for product market fit, building a repeatable and scalable uh, and profitable sales process, and then lastly, the expansion phase. I think the top mistakes happen in the last two phases. I think the, the most common one I'm going to pick out is that when they get into that third phase, they are not aggressive enough about building a recruiting machine to hire salespeople. And so I've sat in countless board meetings where we've missed the bookings target because they didn't hire enough salespeople on time. And they're kind of proud of it because they felt like, well, we saved all this money by not hiring these people on time, when actually they should absolutely not be proud of saving that money. That's a rare situation where you don't want your management team saving money. You want them to be able to hit their hiring plan because that hiring plan determines the ability of the company to grow and to, to grow bookings. So there's just one that I'll pick up for you that I think is a super common miss that people make. And then finishing with one that's not in the schedule, but one I'm too intrigued by having listened to you today. And it's you're a mentor to, to many. We've spoken to Hardy before and you know you inspire many with your blog. Who's your mentor and who do you really look up to and admire? Boy, that's a tough one. There's a, a partner inside of Matrix who has been my mentor. His name is Tim Barrows. He was the board member that I had at Matrix on my last two ventures where I was the entrepreneur and Matrix was my VC. And he's been an unbelievably great guy to have in my uh, background. And he's been, he's very, very smart and he's very experienced. And he's taught me a ton about business, about investing, about management teams, that sort of thing there. So he, he, he would be a great one there. David, I can't tell you literally how much I've enjoyed today. As I said, we're definitely going to do a round two on product stickiness, but I'm so grateful to you for joining me today. Uh, it's been a huge pleasure. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Well, listening to that back, it's no surprise why David won the most downloaded episode of the year there. A huge congratulations to him for that. And you can find out more from David on 4entrepreneurs.com. It really is a must. It's my favorite go-to reading, of course, other than Sasta. And you can also find him on Twitter at BostonVC. Likewise, we'd love to see you behind the scenes at Sasta and the 20 Minute VC on Snapchat at HDubbings with two Bs. Also, do not forget as Christmas comes to get your Sasta annual 2018 tickets. All you have to do is enter the promo code Drinks with Harry those three words drinks with harry and not only do you get an exclusive invite to our mojito event but also 10% off your ticket price it'd be fantastic to see you there however before we leave you today today's episode is sponsored by datadog a cloud scale monitoring and analytics platform datadog brings you visibility into every part of your infrastructure plus apm for monitoring your application's performance dashboarding collaboration tools and alerts let you develop your workflow for observability and incident response and datadog integrates seamlessly with all your apps and systems from Amazon Web Services to Docker to VMware, so you can get full stat visibility in minutes. Simply go to datadog.com forward slash Sasta to learn more. And check this out. If you start a free trial, we'll send you a free t-shirt. And thanks to my friends at WePay, now a Chase company, let me introduce you to another very cool player in SaaS, FuseBill, the subscription billing management platform designed for rapid growth businesses. So why do hundreds of companies use it? To bill more than 10 million customers a year? Because FuseBill's flexible ledger-based product simplifies all 
all aspects of recurring billing and invoicing, meaning users can efficiently maximize their revenue at all stages of growth. And you can learn more at FuseBill.com. And to learn how you can grow your revenue with integrated payments, like FuseBill did, visit WePay.com forward slash Sasta. As I said, WePay's got this incredible cheat sheet on how to get started with platform payments. WePay.com forward slash Sasta. However, I'm so delighted with today's episode. I cannot thank David enough. And as always, we so appreciate all your support. Over and out from us at Team Sasta. Have a fantastic Christmas.